when looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friends! Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from Pee-wee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at Zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, I'm Bill Ripkin, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Jarvis fires away. That's a fly ball, beat the left, back, back, that's it, that's it, hey, hey, he did it, Ernie Banks got number 500, a line drive shot into the seats and left, the ball tossed to the bullpen, everybody on your feet, this is it, Whee! Ernie Banks off Pat Jarvis, May 12, 1970, second inning against the Atlanta Braves. There's the ball. When you hear the term, let's play two, in terms of baseball, most obviously think of Ernie Banks. The gentleman on the phone now has written a book that was on the great Ernie Banks. This gentleman was also a writer for the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Daily News. This author is Ron Rappaport. Ron, how are you doing? Yeah, glad to be with you. It was the Sun Times, not the Tribune. They would hate you if you said, if you said a thing like that in Chicago. <laughs> Absolutely. The rivalry yeah, between right. the two papers was heavy. Well, speaking of papers, I want to jump here to- Real quick, because I'm of a generation, I'm only 35, and I had uh, been familiar with newspapers 
but you've seen the downtrend of them because of the Internet and everything else. Do you think the papers can still exist, say, 10, 15, 20 years from now? It's very hard to say. It could be all digital by then. Um, it's, it's very sad for me uh, to witness this. I worked for newspapers for 40 years, and to see pe- friends of mine and younger people um, not have the same opportunities, and even the people who are working today who do have jobs, I think they're under the gun because of Twitter and Facebook and podcasts, you should pardon the expression, and uh, uh, filming that they have to do, that it's much harder to, uh, to to do that be a sports writer today for a newspaper. Also, when we worked back in the day, newspapers were fat and sassy and sent you everywhere, terrific travel budgets, lots of time to write and so on. I don't see that today, and I'm, it, 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 it pains me to see what's happened to the newspaper business. Well, you mentioned about working at the Sun-Times. Uh, how was... Was there any paper rivalry out in L.A.? Not really. I worked at, I worked for the L.A. Daily News, and it was in the San Fernando Valley. And it didn't really penetrate to downtown Los Angeles. So although it was quite a fine paper and sold a, sold a lot, it was pretty much regional. Um, the players and the, and the coaches didn't always read it. The PR people did, for sure. So it, it wasn't a rivalry in the way the Sun-Times and the Tribune in Chicago were. Understand, understood on that point. Uh, well, let's jump into the book. Let's play two. Obviously, it came out last March, so it's been out just over a year. Well, first and foremost, what's the response been for you? Well, the, 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 I should say the paperback has just been published this March. So Wonderful. That, that's available now, so there is a little bit. The response was terrific. Um, the reviews were Washington Post, um, Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune uh, many times, and other places around the country were very gratifying. And more than that, the Facebook response and emails, because um, my website is on the back cover and people have been able to find my email and send to me, have been have been kind of heartening and, and very touching. I've been in touch with a lot of Cub fans who remember the era, who remember Ernie as a player, who remember him later as a fixture in Chicago after his career was over. And a lot of them are saying, gee, I remember this story and I remember that story. And i got to tell you that um, uh, a couple of them I wrote back and they said, gee, I wish I had heard from you earlier. I would have put those stories in the book. Definitely. But, uh, you know, because the one thing, I'm from the Northeast in the Philadelphia area originally. Right, right. But Chicago is one of those towns when, it, when you talk about sports towns, whether we're in Philly, New York, like Chicago, you know, these different major cities. And Chicago always ranks up there as a major, well-respected sports town, no matter what sport or form of entertainment. People always speak highly of Chicago. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. You're absolutely right. Sports is one of the things, one of the few things that binds Chicago together. The people are very strong in their in their love and their angst and their uh, longtime view, uh, uh, fandom for teams like the Bears and the Bulls and the, the Cubs and the White Sox. Um, add, and add something very special. 
it's a rivalry like no other in sports, I think, because it's generational. It's almost religious in aspect. I'm a Cubs fan because my father was a Cubs fan because his father was a Cubs fan. And it's the same thing with the White Sox. It's sort of inherited, and it's passed down from generation to generation. And that brings about rivalries and um, bitterness between the fans of both, but also a love for their sports and, and, and you know, their interest in it. It's unlike any other city I know of. Um, well, okay, sorry about ahead. that. Go ahead. It's particularly true of the Cubs and the Sox, I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But since you said generation, we'll start here, and it's in the book. Uh, you talk about when the Cubs win, won the World Series in 2016, and it was only a year and a half maybe since Ernie had passed to that point. And right. there were, it was interesting in the in the story that you uh, mentioned how the cops actually had to go to the his, uh they had direct traffic for uh, so people weren't camping out or whatever the story may be. Did well, you uh, go to Chicago for that? No, I was not. I did not live there then. I lived in Chicago. Uh, I, I left Chicago for the last time in 2006. So this is 2016. But here were the stories. The Cubs finally win after 108 years of World Series, 18 yeah. months after Ernie died. So there was a lot of nostalgia. For Ernie G, it's too bad he missed this. His sister, Edna, who is still alive, she's 93. I called her, who I had talked to her, and she was a great source for the book. And I called her when the Cubs got in the World Series. And I said, Edna, are you watching this? And she said, yeah. I said, how do you feel? And she said, it's just too bad. It's just too bad. My brother had to die before this happened. And that was the feeling. For a lot of Chicago fans, remember now this generational aspect. Ernie is buried in Graceland Cemetery. It's about a mile from the ballpark, a mile from Wrigley Field, on Lake Michigan. And it's a beautiful spot. It's kind of a tourist attraction. A lot of famous people are buried there. Well, Ernie's grave uh, was in a section with a lot of famous people who built Chicago, architects, politicians, um, show business people, actors, and so on. Um, and and people would go would go to visit his grave. Well, the night before, you know, the series World Series opened in Cleveland. There's an off day. For that off day, a lot of reporters ran out to Graceland and wrote very touching stories about Ernie. You know how he would have missed it, and his, this is his final resting place. But also, a lot of fans went. It wasn't just newspaper people. And the night before. The World Series opened in Chicago. There were so many people traveling out to Graceland, Cubs fans, that they didn't need policemen to direct traffic. That's absolutely right. That was the scene. That was the feeling of Chicago people about, wouldn't it have been great if Ernie could have been here to throw out the first ball? Yeah. It reminds me of a similar story. And I don't know if you had heard this or not. Another legend from the Phillies, Tug McGraw. He right. had a his son Tim was invited to throw out a first ball. So obviously Tim had, or excuse me, Tug had passed right before this from the brain cancer and everything. 
But people didn't realize at the time, when Tim reached into his jacket, he actually spread some of the ashes over home or the uh, pitcher's mound, which I thought was pretty cool. Same kind of vibe I get as far as wow, Vernie was still here, you know. Yeah, was, yeah. There were there was talk Ernie had said he wanted his ashes strewn at Wrigley Field, and there was a, um, a, a kind of a bitter fight between his wife, from whom he'd long been estranged, and the woman who was his caretaker, his friend and caretaker. She said that Ernie wanted his ashes scattered. But his wife, who was living in California, called and commanded that that not happen, that he be buried in, in uh, Graceland Cemetery. So um, Ernie was, you know, his, his body was on view, so there were no ashes on view at the funeral and so on. There was a, a kind of a lying in wait, too, a day or two before, and people lined up to say goodbye to Ernie. And I talked to Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, and he said when he was there, it was for, it, that, that as people were going by, he could see grown men crying. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But Ernie had that type of respect, both what he did on the field, but the type of person he was off the field as well. Well, Ernie... Ernie was loved by everybody, even Sox fans, who hated everything about the Cubs, couldn't bring themselves not to love Ernie. I make it, and I write in the book, that Ernie is the most popular figure in the history of Chicago. Who else you got? I mean, I mentioned it to somebody, and somebody said, well, Mayor Daley, but a lot of people didn't like Richard Daley, the original Mayor Daley, but a lot of people didn't like him. But nobody of, of that stature was, was, was didn't like Ernie. He was just kind of the tie that bound the city together for more than, well, he came up in 53 and he died in 15. So it was more than 60 years of Ernie being sort of the symbol of, of what people could come together about and agree on in Chicago. Well, obviously, as a newspaper writer and everything, your ties with sports, what kind of relationship would you say you had with Ernie? Well, I didn't cover him. I got to Chicago actually the day he was elected into the Hall of Fame. And um, I, uh, I, he was just kind of a guy, I, somebody I'd see. There was no reason to really write about him. He was somebody who was there at Cubs events, and everybody knew who he was. But the one time I did, the few times I did get close to him were at the Cubs winter, winter convention. People would come from all over the state. To have, for a weekend, talking Cubs players, Cubs managers, you know, about how this year was going to be great, not, you know, we're finally going to break the spell. All the usual nonsense that's said at off-season events like that. Well, Ernie was in a private room, and he would sit at the same chair at the same table year after year. And I would go sit with him and talk to him. And I got a sense then that there was something underneath the guy. That it wasn't just this, let's play two, how you doing, happy, go lucky guy. That he was a real guy with real thoughts about real, um, world things. And I, I, this intrigued me. And when he moved to California, left, uh, he moved, when I left Chicago, right about a few years after we had these conversations, I was living near him. He was living in Marina del Rey. I was living in the San Fernando Valley. We would get together once in a while and record things for a book that I would ho hoped would be an autobiography. But Ernie pulled out of it and decided he didn't want to do it. In the meantime, he was telling me wonderful stories 
that had never been told before, not all the kind of belied, the happy-go-lucky, optimistic, sunny-all-the-time image. Stories about growing up in segregated, um, poverty-stricken Dallas area. Stories about playing for Buck O'Neill in the Negro Leagues with the Kansas City Monarchs. Stories about his awful feud with Leo DeRocher, who went out of his way to humiliate him. And I couldn't write, couldn't, you know, I was fascinated by these stories. Then he decided not to do the book for various reasons. So I was angry about that, upset about it. When he died, I went back and looked at my notes and thought, gee, let me just write one magazine article to get it off my chest. A, you know, the disappointment of not being able to write the autobiography. And B, all the stuff he told me that got underneath the image. So I wrote a magazine article Agent in New York saw it, and next thing you know, I'm writing a book. Well, that meant going out to talking to more than 100 people. His older sister, his younger brother, five of his high school classmates, uh, all of his teammates, all many of the people he knew in Chicago. And they all helped me paint a different, more complex picture of a guy who was sunny and happy and optimistic, but was also at the same time uh, problem- you know, beset with problems, melancholy, and often quite lonely. So what? that's what Let's Play 2 does. It shows both sides of the guy. The guy we knew, happy-go-lucky, sunny, optimistic, and the guy we didn't know. The guy with real problems and real difficulties. Um, and, and, and that was sort of the, the, the way the book got started and what it became. But what was your take after doing all this research and uh, being able to sit and talk with him throughout the years? And you know, What was your total impression when you look at the whole package of Ernie Banks, not just the public figure? Well, he was, as I say, a very complicated guy. For instance, he was married four times, and each of the marriages ended very bitterly. Three of them were in divorce, and one of them uh, is his marriage to his last wife was never um, officially terminated, but they were separated for many years. He had three children. He was was, um, estranged from them. I talked to both of his twin sons. They live here in California. And they were very honest with me about the pleasures and the problems of growing up Ernie Banks' son. Well, in the later years of of Ernie's life, when his health was declining, he and his sons were not really in contact very much. They would talk on the phone. They very seldom saw each other. So these are the kinds of things that Ernie was going through that that kind of were underneath the image of the happiness and the sunshine and the optimism. So that's that's the Ernie Banks I tried to get to know. And I did quite a bit from Ernie. But once I started talking to people, the people who were close to him, they saw, they knew that side of him too. And they were able to tell me stories that helped put the man and his times, the awful cup teams he played for, what Chicago was like then, all those things in context. And those are the things that are dealt with it within the book. Trying to come to terms with the legend of Mr. Cubs, Mr. Cub and the life of Ernie Banks, which is the subtitle of the book. All right. So let's, look at the research that you did there, talking to different teammates and family members and everything else. Was there something story-wise that when you were talking to these folks that really shocked you? 
Well, I was, a lot of people told me some very compelling things. Uh, Ernie told me the most compelling thing of all, which was that he would, you know, he, he would always laugh off not ever, never having played in the World Series. And sometimes he'd say it was a whole of his life and things like that. But always with a kind of sense of, uh, it wasn't that big a deal. Well, when he and I started talking about it, he said it really did bother him very, very much. And then he said one thing that stopped me cold. He said, I even went to see a psychiatrist. Whoa, you know. So I said, Ernie, what did the psychiatrist tell you? He said, what could he say? I'd done the best I could. It wasn't meant to be, and I had to live with it. So Ernie Ernie really, you know, had problems like this. And other people told me stories, too, about various things. For instance, I never really knew the depth of, of uh, the outright um, uh, just a hateful, poisonous relationship between Ernie and Leo DeRocher. There have been stories over the years. Ernie told me a few of them, but some of his teammates told me some that were just amazing to me, how Leo would berate him in the locker room, and Ernie would look around and see people, his teammates looking at him with pity and realizing that Leo was using him as a bad example to motivate the other players on the team. Well, the other players adored him. They admired him. And they just felt so sorry for him. I mean, this is the kind, these are the kinds of stories that I was told that it, it was able to put, you know, the, 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 the real Ernie Banks, the guy beneath the legend, in the context of his dealings with people like Leo and of his sadness of, um, never playing in the World Series and that kinds of things. Do you know that for six years, from 1955 to 1960, Ernie was the most productive power hitter in baseball. He hit more home runs and drove more, drove in more runs than Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, Eddie Matthews, everyone you got for six years. He won two home run titles, two RBI titles, back-to-back MVPs. For his trouble. The Cubs, in those six years, finished a total of 123 games out of first place. He never had a postseason moment. He was this great, great player, but he was also kind of a myth. Because when October yeah. rolled around, there were no playoffs, and the World Series was being played. Ernie was not in the picture. So I still see, to this day, people referring to the great hitters of his era. And they talk about Mays and Mantle and Aaron and Roberto Clemente. Eddie Matthews and the rest. They forget about Ernie. They do. And that's because he was playing for this terrible team that never got on the national stage until the late 60s when he was in his late 30s. That was kind of a tragedy of his career, which is kind of a, a metaphor almost for the very difficult times he went through during his life. Exactly, and I was actually going to bring that up because, like you said, during that six-year period, it's just like, especially, you go, wow, when you think about his contemporaries, like you said. It could be well, they all went to the World Series. Mickey went every year. Willie yeah. Mays and Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron all went to multiple World Series. Ernie was the first first ballot Hall of Famer, the first never to have played in the World Series. Since then, it's still a very select company. Great, great players. Great enough to get into the Hall of Fame. Their first year, everybody knows that they're going in. 
Now it's Rod Carew, Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas. There's still only four of them. Ernie was the first. I mean, can you imagine? uh, It's mind-boggling when you think about that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Sorry. All right. Well, what I was going to ask, because I was doing some homework on Ernie besides what I had already known, and I came across this clip of an interview he was doing, and he spoke about meeting Jackie Robinson. Do you well, know what yeah. do you know of that meeting, and you know, because yeah. that seems like, especially in that time period, so like mythical. It'd be like talking to Jordan today, you know, because of what Jackie had done for the game. Well, that's pretty interesting how they met. Um, in the off season in the in the fifties, the players would go barnstorming to supplement their salaries. And for a while, they would get divided into black teams and white teams. And sometimes they would play each other, but not very often. Well, there, so there would be these tours of, of um, southern cities, mostly, and some of them in the West, where the black players would go. And there was not much television in those There was not much radio even in those days, and hardly any television. And so the black fans wanted to see the black players that they knew about. Well, when Jackie Robinson came into the league, that was all taken to a new level. The black fans in the South demanded to be able to see Jackie Robinson, this great hero, not only of baseball, but of history. And so Jackie would take these these tours of like 30 games in the offseason. And they'd go everywhere in the South, and they'd go to Texas, and they'd end up in California. One day, Ernie is now playing for the Kansas City Monarchs, and he gets a call from the manager of the Kansas of the Indianapolis Clowns, who were the team that the, that the Jackie Robinson All-Stars played, named Buster Haywood. Buster Haywood calls Ernie and he says, Jackie Robinson wants you on his brainstorming team. Now, Ernie was 20 years old. He'd had one year with the Monarchs. And his gut response was, Jackie Robinson knows who I am? <laughs> well, he joins them and he's just awed. That being with not only Jackie Robinson on this team, but Willie Mays, Don Newcomb, Larry Doby, the creme de la creme of the of this pioneering baseball players who had integrated baseball, Ernie was in awe. Well, now Jackie takes a special interest in Ernie, teaches him things about playing shortstop, teaches him things about how to carry himself, and he says something that Ernie never forgot. Don't talk. Listen. And now they go on this tour, and Ernie is playing. And the tour comes to Dallas. And Ernie's dad, Eddie Eddie Banks, was a minor league catcher for a minor leagues, for a Negro Leagues minor leagues team, the Dallas Green Monarchs, semi-pro team. But he loved baseball. And he loved, you know, he was overjoyed by the fact that Ernie had made the big leagues. And now he comes to town with Jackie Robinson. And before the game, Eddie comes down to the field, and Jackie seeks him out and starts saying nice things. You've got a fine young son here. He's going to be a great baseball player. And pretty soon Don Newcomb comes over and some of the others. And, and Ernie says, my dad smoked two cigars that day, and the time it usually took him, took him to smoke one because he was so thrilled that Ernie and Jackie were together 
uh, Ernie never forgot that that first experience with Jackie, who was a hero to him, as he was to all the young black ball players coming into as baseball was just beginning to integrate. Obviously, you know, Jackie would be a hero to all those guys, but just the baseball in general, it's, you know, I didn't hear the whole story because he didn't go that in-depth, but he mentioned a line about listening. And I don't think we can end this on a better note. Let's play to the legend of Mr. Cub, the life of Ernie Banks. Ron, where can people reach you on that website? And obviously I know there would be links to the book and every uh, and the yeah, other book can, you've done as well. The, they can find the book on Amazon very easily. Um, you can, I, I could give you the website link, Rappaport's dot net slash ron but you can you can google me i'm easy to find um i'm on facebook i enjoy hearing from cubs fans and people who've read the book on facebook um that that's that's been very gratifying to me and i hope people will enjoy the book you know here we are at a time with no baseball and i wonder yeah. what ernie would say to that let's play two how about let's play one i mean just anything, <laughs> anything you know so this is kind of a sad time for baseball and and um and uh, it's, but it's a good time to talk about these great memories of this great player. Yeah, because I, I know on Facebook you've seen some of the response we got mentioning we're going to talk to you. That, yeah, it was great. I mean, I was, you, you get you get around. <laughs> yes, there were a lot of nice responses. Yeah, you know it's nice Pete, hearing from the folks that have read the book and everything else, and people have been sending me messages as well. Mentioned it about, oh, check this out, check that out when I was rereading the book, which was awesome. But uh, like Ron said earlier in the interview here, the paperback version is also available now. So go to Amazon, get a copy of the book if you don't have it. Just make sure you check out this great read. Ron, thank you so much. Pleasure being with you. Thanks so much. Just a game For I've seen other teams And it's never the same When you're born in Chicago You're blessed and you're healed The first time you walk into Wrigley Field Our heroes wear pinstripes Heroes in blue Give us the chance to feel like heroes too Forever we'll win and if we should lose, we know someday we'll go all the way. Yeah, someday we'll go all the way. Hey, hey, he did it! We are one with the Cubs, with the Cubs we're in love. Yeah, hold our head high as the underdogs. We are not fair weather, but foul weather fans. Like brothers in our Today, we salute fierce competitors who became true champions. In the sweltering heat of a Chicago summer, Ernie Banks walked into the Cubs locker room and didn't like what he saw. Everybody was sitting around, heads down, depressed, he recalled. So Ernie piped up and said, boy, what a great day. Let's play two. <laughs> That's Mr. Cub. A man who came up through the Negro Leagues making $7 a day and became the first black player to suit up for the Cubs and one of the greatest hitters uh, of all time. And in the process, Ernie became known 
as much for his 512 home runs as for his cheer and his optimism and his eternal faith that someday the Cubs would go all the way. <laughs> And that's, that's serious belief. <laughs> that is something that even a White Sox fan like me can respect. Uh, but he is just a wonderful man and, and uh, a great icon uh, of my hometown. Ernie Banks. With an unmatched enthusiasm for America's pastime, Ernie Banks slugged, sprinted, and smiled his way into the record books. Known to fans as Mr. Cub, he played an extraordinary 19 seasons with the Chicago Cubs, during which he was named to 11 All-Star teams, hit over 500 home runs, and won back-to-back -back Most Valuable Player honors. Ernie Banks was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1977, and he will forever be known as one of the finest power hitters and most dynamic players of all time. Try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts, there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend whilst in Sail Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS.
Hello, everybody. I'm Billy Sample, former major leaguer and now filmmaker. And you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. <laughs> 